According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John chapter 15 is our passage today. John 15. Continuing on in our study and abiding in the word and abiding in the vine, loving one another, bearing fruit. This chapter has quite a bit to say, doesn't it? John chapter 15. The Lord is continuing his ecclesiastical preview. And he's doing so here on the walk to the garden. This is main point seven in the outline. On the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. He's been teaching the eleven from the very moment the unbeliever left. From the very moment that Judas Iscariot departed, he said, what you do, do quickly. And uh, Judas departed the upper room to go fetch the soldiers and, uh, and have our Savior arrested. This is the night in which he's betrayed. And as soon as the, uh, the adversary departs there in John chapter 13, Jesus says, now, now is the Son of Man glorified. And so uh, from the, the final paragraph of chapter 13 into chapter 14, it's all an ecclesiastical preview. That is, Jesus Christ is giving teaching that relates to the church, only to the church. There is no Israel application for any of the, of the doctrines, concepts, promises, principles that are found in chapter 14, 15, 16, the high priestly prayer of 17. All of this relates to the church age. All right? We want to be very clear on that. I've stressed it. I'm going to keep stressing it. You're probably going to get sick of hearing it, but it's vital that you understand why the upper room discourse, the upper room and walk to the garden discourse, is for the church. And why it is that the Olivet Discourse is for Israel. And the people that try to read the church into the Olivet Discourse are wrong. And the people that try to... Uh, and if they don't understand that, they're going to be confused with respect to... They, they think there they might be a rapture message in Matthew 24. There's not. One will be taken, one will be left. That's not a rapture passage. That is a second advent passage. That is uh, the taking and casting into, the, into hell. Uh, because no unbeliever will be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. The ones that are left at the second advent are the believers that will enter into the millennial kingdom. All right. So this is main point seven then. On the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. That's the content of uh, John chapter 15. Let's start with a word of prayer. Ask the Father to bless our thinking and then return to where we left it off two weeks ago today. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for um, how your word is alive and powerful. This isn't just some academic study or some dry uh, academic set of facts, Father. This is the living and abiding word of God. We are growing in not just knowledge, but grace and knowledge. And so as we receive the word implanted, it is able to save the soul. We have now a living, uh, abiding in your word. We abide in your word. Your word abides in us. And this mutual, reciprocal abiding, Father, we want to understand more and more of what it's about. We want that word to dwell richly within us, Father. We might be able to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Father, uh, make this very real to us that we can live it on a day-by-day basis for your good pleasure, for the glory of your Son, and under the filling of the Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, under this, we uh, dealt with verses 1 through 8. 
as point A, Adam was given a garden to tend, but the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. And the recognition that the Father does the pruning, the Father is the vine dresser, Jesus is the, bro- uh, the vine. It's all about the Father and the Son. And uh, our attachment uh, or our position here related to that is entirely 100% connected to our position in Christ. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. In Him, we do everything. But it's not us doing it. It's the Father working in and through us for His good pleasure. The Father's the one that does the work. Now, we had some subpoints under this, but I'm going to let that go. Uh, let's try... Nope. There we go. Point B. Where did I leave off, by the way? Did I get to point B two weeks ago? I meant to double check that. We did. Okay. Good, good, good. Point B. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. Verses 9 through 17. And this is what I want to return to here this morning. Verses 9 through 17. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. Now, the order on this, I think, is vital. That... uh, the, the recognition of, of who we are in Christ and our abiding in Christ, our abiding in His Word, these are necessary, prerequisites, necessary before we can move on to verses 9 through 17. <clears throat> Love is a mature application. Uh, a baby believer, all they have is a baby understanding of love. It takes an adolescent and mature believer to start to think in terms of the adolescent and mature capacities for love. And so I don't think it's accidental at all that verses 1 through 8 uh, precede verses 9 through 17. And that the uh, abiding in uh, Christ and abiding in God's word are then a requirement for abiding in God's love. And so we see this here in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. This is a separate imperative from abide in me or abide in my word. All right, productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. Now, under this, point one, Jesus' love for his church is just as. Recognize the just as. It's an, it's an adverb. It's, a, it's a, you know, the adverbial expression here that speaks of the means, the means, the method, the motivation, uh, and, and everything else related to it. Just as. In other words, no differences. Jesus Christ is going to love his church just as in the same means, with the same motivation, for the same duration, sacrificially, unconditionally, eternally, all right, just as the Father has loved him. And so how is that? Well, if you turn to John seventeen twenty four, you understand it's from the foundation of the world. If you turn to John three, verse thirty five, you find out that it's a love with a giftedness, a love with a giving connected to it. So Jesus' love for His church is just as the Father has loved Him. In other words, from the foundation of the world, with the love-giftedness of all things for all time. All things for all time. Hopefully we can learn this lesson and realize that it, it carries forward another step. It's not just the Father loving the Son. It's the Son loving the church. But it's also the church... Loving one another. There you go. Loving one another. And so we recognize it gets carried forward an additional step where it should be unconditional. It should be eternal. It should be. Uh, it should have a love giftedness that goes with it. 
love is a motivating virtue and it should not be without the activity that goes with it. It's like faith without works is dead. Love without giving, I would say, is not love. When uh, the pastor of the church of Ephesus left his first love, he's admonished to return to his first love, but also to resume doing his first deeds. First love has first deeds uh, there in Revelation chapter 2. All right, so this is uh, what we dealt with a couple weeks back. That's why I'm so rusty. We had vacation Bible school last week. And so, all right, one week a year that we don't do the Life of Christ class and um, my traditional Wednesday morning vacation when uh, I have this uh, Wednesday morning off. All right. Secondly now, secondly, we have a consequent imperative. The consequent imperative is for the church to abide in Christ's love. This is the consequent imperative. In other words, as a result, as a consequence uh, to uh, the Father loving Christ and Christ loving the church. Because of those realities, we now have an imperative. The imperative makes no sense if the previous two realities aren't true. But the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the church, and on that basis, we have an imperative. The consequent imperative is for the church to abide in Christ's love. The consequent imperative is for the church to abide in Christ's love. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to meno? What does it mean to dwell? What does it mean to abide? We've, we've talked about this each step of the way. We've talked about this when we abide in God's word. We talk about this when we abide in Christ. And now here we are again talking about it when we talk about abiding in Christ's love. Where you abide is where you dwell. Where you abide is where you belong. Where you abide is where you spend the bulk of your time. All right. Where you abide is where you are living. Not where you visit. Not where you're uncomfortable. Not where you're out of place. All right. If there's a place you haven't been to very often in the, the few times you've been there, you, you left as quick as you could. All right. That wasn't your home. At least I hope it wasn't. All right. Um, home is where you belong. Home is where you fit in. Home, home is where you reside. It's where you are protected. It's where you are safe. It is where you, uh, where you sleep. See, all of these aspects of abiding in the Word of God, abiding in Christ's love. Now, I've defined it this way, living daily in the conscious awareness of our Savior's unconditional love, the conscious awareness the conscious awareness, where it's in your thinking, it's in the forefront of your thinking. I'm not talking about in the back of your mind. I'm not talking about way back in the dusty recesses of your memory and you think about it, oh, you know, every hundred years or whatever. No, it's not something that you, uh, that you don't think about except uh, rarely. Okay? There's probably plenty of other things that you don't think about except every so often it comes up and you start to scratch your head and say, now how did that work again? And you're trying to, trying to remind yourself, okay? Um, different things, okay? Like um, every time the pilot light goes out. How, well, that doesn't happen all that often, but when it does, you then have to take the little cover off and crawl down under it, look at it with a flashlight and say, now wait a minute, how did this thing go again? And you're looking at the, the, the setting on the thing and it's got a on and it's got an off and it's got a pilot and it's got another thing and you've got to push it down to turn it to the right and it's just and every time you can't remember how you did it the last time why it's been too long yeah it's been too long and so you're, you're trying to remember now how did this work again and and uh 
you're not consciously thinking about your pilot light all day, every day. You're not, you're not opening up that closet and pulling off the panel and looking at that thing morning, noon, and night, seven days a week. All right. In fact, you don't even care if it's on until winter and then, you know, one or two days there, you, you actually need the furnace going. So, um, but this is what I'm talking about. Abiding in Christ's love. Abiding in Christ, abiding in God's Word, all these things. Abiding in means that's where you dwell. And like the definition, living daily in the conscious awareness. In other words, it's the forefront of your thinking. Your eyes are fixed on it. You are paying attention to it. You are thinking about it. You are dwelling on it. Living daily in the conscious awareness of our Savior's unconditional love. And, that's the first part of verse 9, and imitating Christ's walk of obedience before the Father. That's verse 10. If you, uh, it says, uh, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as. Now, everything we did with the first just as, we've got to do with this just as. Just as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. All right? Now we've got another just as. Just as. That means my walk of obedience has to be just as. Jesus Christ had His walk of obedience. Walking in the Father's love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. I abide in His love. Okay, And this means you may have to take up your cross. You may have to lay down your life. You may have to be faithful until death. If you're not willing to do that, then you're not keeping His commandment. You're not loving Jesus Christ as He loved the Father. See, Remember, Look how chapter 14 ended, 1431. So that the world may know that I love the Father. I go, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. He went to the the cross as an eternal testimony to His love for the Father. He, He died on the cross as a testimony to His love for the Father. Do we benefit? Of course. Of course we benefit. But it wasn't because He loved us. Because He loved the Father. The Father gave the Son because He loved us, but the Son loved the Father. Hopefully these things will start sinking in the more we look at them and the more we chew on them. Now, um, again, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And what's His number one commandment? Love one another. Okay, that's commandment number one, but it is commandments plural here in verse 10, so it's more than that. It's everything that He would assign for us to do. Every door that He opens, every assignment that He lays before us, every, every crown that's there to be laid hold of, everything for which we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus, we want to lay hold of it. We want to obey His commandments. It demonstrates our love. Alright, so that's the second point of study as it relates to our productive work capacity. Thirdly now, the dispensation of the church, the dispensation of the church is the first stewardship to receive the fullness of the joy of Christ. The dispensation of the church is the first stewardship to receive the fullness of the joy of Christ. John 15:11. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The dispensation of the church is the first stewardship to receive the fullness of the joy of Christ. Israel didn't have it. The Gentiles didn't have it. The angels didn't have it. Now, they had joy, of course. I can find joy in the Old Testament. David had joy. He was singing and dancing and stripping off his clothes, and his uh, wife was actually kind of embarrassed 
David had all kinds of joy. But it was David's joy. It was not Christ's joy. All right, there's a difference. We should have our own joy, and the, whole, and the fruit of the Spirit is going to produce joy, love, joy, peace, and we understand that. But we actually receive Christ's very joy, the joy that Christ has, the joy that He has in obeying and serving His Father. We receive that. We receive the joy of Christ in fulfilling the Father's grace eternal plan. We receive the joy of Christ in achieving everything that Christ achieves for the Father's good pleasure. What is it that gives you joy? Well, could be any number of things. What is it that gives Jesus joy? And that becomes ours as well. All right? So, let's, uh, let's spell this out a little bit. Uh, again, I want to be clear. Not, I'm not denying that um, Israel had joy. Of course they had joy. Or that Gentiles had joy. You bet they had joy. But they didn't have the joy of Christ. And they didn't have the fullness of the joy of Christ. Uh, that requires... Um, the hearer to receive the content of uh, John 13 through 17. <laughs> All right. In other words, to orient to the reality of the church age. These things I've spoken to you so that purpose clause with the result, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, two things under this. First of all, we are the only ones with this kind of capacity. So point A, we have the capacity to identify the eternal redemption that we have in Christ. It comes down to our capacity. We have the capacity to identify the eternal redemption we have in Christ. Want to know why previous dispensations couldn't have the fullness of joy? They didn't have capacity to identify with it. They didn't have the heavenly citizenship to identify with it. Christ's joy is a heavenly joy. It's not an earthly joy. The fullness of the joy of Christ is not about any earthly blessing. It's all heavenly. The rejoicing is in heaven. We have this time and time again. In fact, this is the point of Luke 15. The prodigal son, the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost boy. All right. So let's turn over to Luke 15. No stewardship prior to the church has the heavenly perspective to identify with the heavenly joys, to join together with the heavenly joys. They might have an earthly reflection, but not the capacity to take part in the heavenly reality. And so the parable of Luke 15 in three parts. It's the same parable all three times. Luke 15. And, and specifically, I mean, you might as well say the entire chapter, but specifically, we have heavenly rejoicing in view. In verse 5, verse 6, verse 9, verse 10, verse 23, 24, and 32. And there's earthly celebration, of course. A coin gets found, and it's found on earth. Woohoo. Uh, so there's earthly celebration. But that is simply a reflection. And as a, as a parable, it's a make-believe story anyway. The reality is in heaven. All right. So the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. 
And the whole point of telling this parable is to tell a bunch of unbelieving legalists <laughs> they don't have a clue. All right. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost, which is lost until he finds it? They all would do that. They absolutely would do that. They wouldn't just say, oh, well, we still got 99. That's good enough. They would go find the one that's lost. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. So there's joy. And Israel had a, had a frame of reference to understand earthly joy. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. If there's something that brings you joy, you want to share it. And as humans, we have a capacity to share in joy. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And your fellow human beings can identify with that. Your fellow human beings can appreciate uh, a lost sheep. Uh, they can appreciate when that sheep is found because they would have the same attitude themselves. And so within the human capacity to identify with uh, something lost and something found, uh, they, they would they'd be happy for you. They would be happy for you. And they would rejoice with you. Okay? But that's entirely in the earthly scope of things. That's entirely within the, the earthly human perspective. There's more than that. There's so much more than that. There's the heavenly reality. And that is where not everybody has capacity to identify with that. That's where a tremendous segment, in fact, the bulk of humanity, unbelieving, unregenerate humanity, has no capacity at all. They don't understand why you have the priority system you have. They don't share it. They don't rejoice in the things you rejoice because they don't see the joy in it. And sadly, I hate to say this, but a large segment of believing humanity as well. They're not disciples. They're not abiding in the Word of God. They have eternal life, yes. They're regenerate, absolutely. They're going to go to heaven when they die. At which time they're going to start to learn. <laughs> at which point it's going to be exposed how little their mind was renewed. How little their thinking was transformed how uh, precious little treasure they've laid up in heaven. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy. In fact, it is a, it is a degree beyond. It's an order of magnitude beyond. But in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous person, persons who need no repentance. Alright, so the truth is, is that there's heavenly joy. And people are invited to share in the heavenly joy. And it's not an earthly people that get to share in the heavenly joy. It is a heavenly people that get to share in the heavenly joy. See how that works? It's us. We are the heavenly citizens. We are the ones that lay up treasures in heaven. We are the ones that participate in the, in the heavenly economy. We are the ones that have the heavenly perspective to rejoice when the things in heaven are rejoicing. We are the ones that bind what has been bound in heaven. We loose what has been loosed in heaven. The church is, is the stewardship, the first one ever, to have this interaction between heaven and earth in the way that we have it. Alright, so that's the application there. It gets repeated in the lost coin. What woman if she has ten silver coins? And this, we, uh, as we taught this, we understood this is uh, in all likelihood part of the uh, aspect in culture you would understand that this is part of her wedding uh, veil. That this, this is a part of her bride uh, price that she has sewn these coins into her veil and this is part of her dowry and part of her, her treasure. And uh, 
you know, the idea that she's lost part of that is, is unthinkable. More than the monetary value is the, the sentimental value, the, the significance of this treasure. And she loses one coin. Does she uh, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Not gonna, you're not going to um, uh, quit looking until you find it. All right? Doug, you're okay. All right. There you go. Uh, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which was lost. Okay? Again, why her friends and neighbors? Well, those are the ones she identifies with. Those are the people she's familiar with. And they have capacity to identify with what she's rejoicing over. They're her peers. And they have an understanding and a capacity to rejoice over what it is that she's finding joy in. Okay? In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. And so the expression is slightly different. Um, there is uh, more joy in heaven, verse 7. And in verse 10, it's in the presence of the angels of God. Okay? Slightly different wording, but same concept. It's a heavenly perspective. And it's more than just the, the human realm. It's the angelic realm. Remember, here's a body of, of uh, moral beings that cannot procreate. There's a body of moral beings that are not redeemed like you and I are redeemed. And they see uh, God the Son become a man and give himself in our place. So, interesting aspect of the rejoicing that happens there. And then finally, the third retelling of this is the longest retelling of this is the lost boy, the prodigal son. And uh, you'll note uh, the rejoicing that happens here, verse 23, verse 24. Um, the father says, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Notice now, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate the heavenly perspective related to this boy. He had been dead out there in darkness, operational death. Now he has been found. Of course, the older son then share in that okay why not why does he not rejoice why does he not share in that joy is he not equipped to why does he not have the frame of reference or the capacity the term on the board is capacity capacity see that's why we want to be saved we want to be occupied with christ we we got to be uh, abiding in the word of god or we won't even have the capacity to abide in his love and share in the fullness of his joy We'd have no more capacity to do that than the unbelievers, if truth be told. All right. Down to verse 32. I like the language of have to. Have to. When he uh, rebukes his, uh, his grumbling older son there, he says, we had to celebrate and rejoice. It's not even an option. We have to. If God has done great things, then He is worthy to be praised. How dare we not? What kind of judgment would we come under if we don't rejoice and celebrate and give God the glory? We had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. And so this is the application that we find it. The, the dad identifies with it. The older boy does not. All right. So we have this capacity. We can identify we can identify with the eternal redemption we have in Christ. And that right there is all the reason to celebrate. Beyond that, we have the capacity to operate with, within heavenly, divine norms and standards for eternal joy. It starts with salvation, but it doesn't stop with salvation. 
Okay? What do you rejoice over? Well, I rejoice, first of all, that I'm saved. But I don't stop there. Point B. We have the capacity to operate within heavenly, divine norms and standards for eternal joy. For eternal joy. And the more we start identifying with this, the more we start operating within God's divine norms and standards for eternal joy, the less we start compromising, the less we compromise for temporal joy. It's tragic. Believers who just cave for some temporal joy, for the passing pleasures of sin, for some earthly happiness, and they are throwing away eternal joy. Well, I would put forth that uh, the, the basis for their making such a compromise is that they've not developed or nurtured this love of Christ. They've not kept themselves in the love of Christ. They have not abided in the love of Christ. They're not um, keeping themselves uh, in the uh, mindset that allows them to receive the, the, the joy of Christ and have that made full. Again, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, may be made full. So we have the capacity to identify the eternal redemption we have in Christ. And secondly, we have the capacity to operate within heavenly divine norms and standards for eternal joy. Am I doing the things that make my father pleased? Am I doing the things that cause him to rejoice? That cause my Savior to rejoice? That cause the angels in heaven to rejoice? Or am I taking actions that might make me rejoice, but the heavens are weeping? All right. As Paul says, I tell you now, even weeping, there are enemies of the cross of Christ. Are they rejoicing or are they weeping right now watching what I'm doing? So we have Romans 14, 17, Romans 15, 13, Philippians 1, 25 and Philippians 2, 2, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 1 Peter 1, 8, 1 John 1, 4. And if you need more, I'll probably find some more. <laughs> All right. The idea of our rejoicing is heavenly and eternal. When we're commanded to rejoice, it's rejoice in the Lord. We ignore that in the Lord. We just say rejoice always. Well, it's rejoice in the Lord. See, there's some things in, uh, in, in that are not in the Lord that you don't rejoice over, but you rejoice in the Lord. All right. Romans 14, 17. Let's start taking a look at this. And hopefully you'll see in each one of these instances that you should be thinking of it in heavenly terms and in eternal terms. If you limit your joy, <laughs> if you limit your joy to something temporal and something earthly, you can do that. But why? Can an unbeliever do that? <laughs> I mean, seriously, can an unbeliever find something to rejoice over that's earthly and temporal? Can we not expand our thinking to the eternal and the heavenly? And find what is it that the Lord is rejoicing in? Okay? And the whole communal nature of this, the, the, the man found his sheep and he wanted his neighbors to join him in that, in that joy. The woman found her coin and she wanted her friends and neighbors to join her in that joy. The father found his son and he wanted his other son to join him in that joy. So let's ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus is finding joy in 
And he's inviting us to join him in his joy. And maybe that's a better approach to rejoice anyway. Instead of finding things that I'm rejoicing in and then hoping that maybe he'll, he'll share in that. Why don't I start sharing what he's rejoicing in? See the order on that? All right. Romans 14, 17. The, um, this is why being a stumbling block or, or these, making a non-issue an issue to the point of tearing down a brother is just ridiculous. Worse than that, it's tragic. If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. You stopped abiding in Christ's love. You stopped abiding in God's word. You stopped abiding in Christ. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Or I would put in any of these other non-issues that you turn into issues in order to create a stumbling block. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So make heavenly your focus first. Are you acceptable to God? Is, is Christ glorified? Is, is, is he rejoicing? Start with that and then find your earthly temporal application. Likewise, down into chapter 15. Romans 15, 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. All joy and peace in believing. Now, is he talking to unbelievers saying, Hope you get saved someday? No, he's talking to believers who already are saved, but who need the filling okay, of joy and peace. And this comes about, in fact, they both come about part of Christ's bequest. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Uh, and he says, my joy, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, that my joy may be made full. So here we have them both combined in one verse. And the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In other words, when you're walking by faith in Christ, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that, that you're afraid of because you're walking in, in joy and peace. All right, so there it is. And that ought to be our daily possession. That ought to be day by day, moment by moment. In believing. Assuming, of course, that you're walking by faith and not by sight. Philippians 1.25. Philippians 1.25. Gentiles eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Convinced of this. And it's interesting. Um, let me back up a little bit. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you've got, you've got a description of his walk in conflict. And of course, the prison epistle. He, uh, he hopes he's, to, he's going to be released. He has confidence he's going to be released. Um, but he may not. And so whether he lives or dies, that's God's business. Verse 20 says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust in him. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But 
if I am to live on in the flesh, if, if He spares my life, what does that mean? This will mean fruitful labor for me. The only reason He leaves me here on earth is there's more work to do and I better get busy about it. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. You know, martyrdom is to my advantage. <laughs> it means I'm, I'm done with the body of this death. I'm done with all the darkness I'll ever see again. I'm done with all of that. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. The believers at Philippi, the believers at Corinth, the believers, I mean, all the believers and pastors and churches and all the service that that is left for Paul to achieve. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, notice now, for your progress and joy in the faith. Notice Paul, this is, this is intercessory, Paul uh, wants to edify others. It's their joy for which he's serving. He is serving for their progress and joy in the faith. Not his own joy, their joy. Jesus says, these things I've spoken that my joy may be in you, may be made full. Benefiting the joy of others. It's not about, well, what do I get out of it? I'm going to pick out a church based on my joy, based on how it entertains me, how it flatters me, how I get puffed up, how I feel. And if I feel happy, then, you know, I'll drop ten bucks in the plate, right? But it's all about me. What, do, what am I getting out of this? Tragic. That's a satanic approach. That's not a Christ-like approach. Was Christ thinking about himself on the cross? Not at all. All right. So it's joy. It's progress in joy. For your progress. It doesn't just happen automatically. It takes growth. It takes working with other believers. You're edifying them. They're edifying you. They're going to make his joy complete. That's chapter 2 and verse 2. Make my joy complete. Now, he's serving them for their progress and joy, but they're going to make his joy complete as well. It goes both directions. It's bi-directional. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In other words, don't be a Corinth. <laughs> don't be a schismatic church. Be like-minded. Be, walk in love towards one another. Serve one another. Grow in that grace and knowledge. And uh, nothing, nothing gives a Bible teacher greater joy than to see his children walking in truth. Nothing would make Paul's joy complete more so than watching these believers in Philippi just thriving, serving one another, loving one another, praying with one another. And you see it there. All right, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. This one's too easy. You all know this one. This trinity of imperatives. But I want you to see something. The uh, context here is no different than the context we just looked at in Philippians. In other words, he's urging the flock to get along with one another and to get along with him. <laughs> okay? As it says there in verse 12, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction. In other words, don't be an ornery sheep. And that you esteem them very highly in love. Love your leaders. So this is, uh, this is just everything he said to the Philippians in Philippians 2.2 where he says, make my joy complete. 
by being intent on one purpose, united together in love, and so forth. Similar uh, exhortation here. And that you esteem them very highly in love. Notice now, not because they deserve it, not because they're worthy of it, they probably aren't, but because of their work. What are they doing? They're shepherding you. If you make it harder on them to shepherd you, who gets hurt? You do. <laughs> okay. Pastoral appreciation is entirely for your sake. Love them, esteem them, live in peace with them. Live in peace with one another, it says. All right. And it's in this context then where it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for. Notice now, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. It's rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. 1 Peter 1.18. No, 1 Peter 1.8 and then 1 John 1.4. Last references on this. 1 John 1. 1 Peter 1.8. And of course, he's talking to believers. Uh, there's no doubt on that. Um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us, Peter and his audience, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's us to obtain an inheritance imperishable and defiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All right, in this you greatly rejoice. So we have capacity. And this, this passage, by the way, I think contains both the A and the B that are on the slide there. The capacity to, to identify the eternal redemption we have in Christ, right? Verses 3 and 4, okay? And yet, there's more than that. There's something beyond that to look forward to. Verse 5, the, the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, And so we, we recognize that we have the past salvation of our souls and the future salvation of our bodies. We have the positional truth that we rejoice in, but then there's also the experience that we, we walk the Christian walk and we lay hold of the treasures and the rewards and the things that we're, we're reaching forward to. So in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary... You've been distressed by various trials. And we rejoice in that too. <laughs> How could I rejoice in my salvation and then not rejoice in my testing? Well, I know how I could. <laughs> we do it a lot, don't we? But how dare I? See, the one, I mean, like the book of Job, shall we accept the good and not the bad? And does this not go with that? And if my Savior suffered, shouldn't I have to suffer? And if he had to learn, should, don't I have to learn? And... and uh, that if necessary, the father said, told the, the older brother, the prodigal son, it is necessary. We have to rejoice. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, not just your faith where you, the day you got saved, but the proof, the demonstration, the manifestation of that, the living testimony to men and angels alike, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, man, what a blessing it's going to be to get to heaven and to see, to see our brothers and sisters, to see that not only were they saved by grace through faith, that's a given, but then what did they do in faith in the outworking of their salvation? What did they do in faith? What did God do in and through them? You know, I mean, it's one thing to uh, to read about martyrs, to read about Dietrich Bonhoeffer or whatever, but you, we're going to get to meet him. We're going to get to meet uh, these martyrs and what they've done. We're going to get to meet George Mueller and, and we're going to get to meet these tremendous heroes, Hudson Taylor and great missionary heroes. And uh, we're going to see praise and glory and honor that their life accrued because God worked through them, because they walked by faith. The proof of their faith um, being being seen through what they've done. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Now again, I, I tell you, this is the connection between love and joy. We're to abide in Christ's love. And if we abide in Christ's love, what's the result? His joy will be in us. His joy will be made full. The fullness of his joy. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him. In other words, you're walking by grace through faith. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I think this is the capacity we have in the church that Israel and the Gentiles never had. The fullness of Christ's joy. The joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Phase two, salvation, deliverance, and sin temptations and through time. All right. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. And then finally, 1 John 1, 4, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Our joy may be made complete. Wouldn't be possible had, had Jesus not given this church age information to the disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. So we have the capacity. It wasn't limited to the eleven. It is, a, it is a gift to the entire church age, to believers from rapture to Pente- from Pentecost to rapture. Not just to the eleven. The, the, the peace of Christ, the joy of Christ are, are to be ours in abundance. They're to be made full. They're to be made complete or mature. I like, I like mature as a translation more so than complete. Okay, um, Complete means there's something... I mean... Not that there's something lacking, but it's not as mature, it's not as aged, it's not as strong, it's not as developed. Not that it's missing when you're a babe in Christ, but it just has to grow up. You just have to grow up in it. All right. Back to John 15 then. So the dispensation of the church is the first stewardship to receive the fullness of the joy of Christ. No other stewardship had heavenly equipping. No other stewardship had the position of being uh, baptized into union with Christ, whereby we become partakers of these things. We have capacity to have the joy of Christ. How would they have that without being partakers of the divine nature? And then fourthly, the last thing I'll say on this. Love for the body of Christ is a fully adult and volitionally accountable work assignment. Love for the body of Christ is a fully adult and volitionally accountable work assignment. 
It's not for babies. Babies don't have capacity. If abide these three, faith, hope, love, that's probably the order you're going to learn them in. Abiding in faith, as you learn as a baby learns how to walk by faith. Abiding in hope, as an adolescent believer starts to put together realms of doctrine and starts to focus on the dispensational scheme of the things to come. But then abiding in love, as the mature believer identifies with Christ in your work assignment day by day. You take up your cross, you lay down your life. That's an adult work assignment. Love for the body of Christ is a fully adult and volitionally accountable work assignment. If you fail to love, you will reap the consequences. So we have verses 12 through 17 here of John 15. And he'd already given them this commandment back in John 13. So isn't that good enough? Why is he, why is he going back to this again? Okay. Well, because there's more to say. There's more to relate. Back in John 13, 34, he said, This is the new commandment. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And all he really says about it is, first of all, you're commanded to do it, and it's supposed to be as I loved you. But then he highlights that it's going to be a testimony. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's the introduction to it. It's just as a witness, as a testimony that we belong to the body of Christ. We are church-age saints, and we... Demonstrate that to the fallen world as we love one another. But there's so much more than that, and that gets fleshed out here in John 15. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. And I would also point out, just as I have loved you excludes the cross. Because on the night he's saying this, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. Now this is this is simply talking about the purpose for his life, like in John 17, 4. Uh, talking about how he has loved them and training them and teaching them and traveling with them and putting up with them in uh, everything that he's done with them leading up to and including this night. But it does not look forward to it. Later on we find out that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that it will include the cross, but not here in this verse. All right. Anyway, well, we'll expo- expand upon that here shortly. So this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. There you go. Now he highlights what's going to happen tomorrow morning. What's going to happen the very next day. That what he has done up until now is going to give way to what he's going to do tomorrow. All right. You are my friends if you do what I command you. My philoi. And what's interesting here, we've had agape all the way up till now. And now we get philos. Now we get rapport love. In fact, we have the philoi three different times. That's why I wanted to open this up. Let me bring you to John 15. And you have uh, words of Christ in red, probably, in most of your Bibles. And uh, I also have uh, words of love in blue and green. Don't ask me why agape is blue and philo is green. I just had to pick something. Okay. <laughs> so just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. All the blues there, those are all agape. Agape the noun, agapao the verb. Uh, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my agape, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His agape. All right. We get to verses 12 and following, and all of a sudden we have green we have the term for friends, the philoi, and philos love. So this is my commandment that you agape, agapao, actually a verb, 
This is my commandment that you agapao one another just as I have agapaoed you. And greater agape has no one than this, that one lay down his soul, his psuche, his life, for his philoi, for his friends, with phileo love. You are my philoi if you do what I command you. So if you abide in my love, we've got the combination of abiding in love and keeping my commandments. You see that there? Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my agape. But now in verse 14, he says, you are my philoi if you do what I command you. So we have just gone from agape to phileo. And we've just intensified what we're looking at here. Okay? Agape, of course, is the motivation that gives phileo any meaning at all. No longer do I call you slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Called you friends. Again, this is a step up. This is intimacy that Israel never enjoyed. This is, uh, this is a privilege that the royal family of God is entitled to as friends, as brothers, as fellow workers, as royal family. Israel didn't have this. The Gentiles didn't have this. The angels never had this. No previous stewardship had this. A friend is entitled to information that a slave is not entitled to. So no longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. In other words, there's no secrets. Everything the father has revealed to the son, the son's revealed to us. We have the full realm of doctrine we are entitled to. Everything that Christ was entitled to, we're entitled to. We're his bride. No secrets between the husband and the bride. At least not in that marriage between Christ and the church. Okay. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. That's I command you that you agapao one another. Now I find this interesting. You do not choose me, but I chose you. Anytime we study election, the point to election is not simply to be saved. You are appointed that you would go and bear fruit. Okay, not just to go to heaven when you die, but appointed to go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain. We have eternal work to be done. So that whatever you ask my father, my name, he may give to you. All right. Three sub points and to give them to you in three minutes. We'll see. All right. But love for the body of Christ is a fully adult and volitionally accountable work assignment. Uh, I, again, I put forth, the baby has no capacity for love. He says he loves. Little kids say they love. I, I love you, Daddy. I love you, Mommy. Right? And, and then they, but it's just immature. It's infantile. It's, it's, it's childish. And then they hit adolescence, and it's, I hate you, Mom. I hate you, Dad. All right? And then uh, they get to adult capacity, and it's like, okay, I didn't really hate you. I'm sorry about all that. And uh, I love you, and, 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 um, and, and, and I need a lot of help right now. <laughs> okay? Yeah. My dad uh, became the smartest man on the face of planet Earth um, in 1991, the day that Bob was born. That's right. <laughs> yeah, the day that Bob was born. When I became a parent, man, my dad became a genius. Calling him up, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do? All right. First of all, our love for one another is to be just as. Just as the Lord's love for us. It's another just as. Pay attention to the just as is in this passage. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. We have the just as. 
And so how was that? Eternal. <laughs> okay? And we can't go back to eternity past, but today we can have an eternal mindset, can we not? The love that the Father had for the Son was from the foundation of the world. The love that the Son had for us was from the foundation of the world. Their love, their agape love for us is an eternal love. Should we not love one another with an eternal love? If it's to be just as, how could we have a temporal love? How could we have a conditional love? How could we have a love so far as you love me? Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's not agape love. All right. Or what have you done for me lately? Or do you deserve it? No, our love for one another is to be just as. In other words, it's to be eternal and it's to be giving. And what is it willing to give? Everything. Everything. All things. The eternal giftedness of all things. God so loved the world that He gave the infinite gift. His Son. Our love for one another is to be just as the Lord's love for us. And the baby isn't going to have capacity to even understand that. To barely comprehend that, let alone to apply it himself. It takes growth. You've got to learn this. You've got to walk in the love to learn the love. Secondly, agape love provides the motivational virtue for philos love. The motivational virtue for philos love. It's unfortunate you can learn a philos love without agape. And unfortunately, when you do that, it's your friendship with the world that James 4.4 condemns. You can develop a philos love apart from agape love, but it's, it's a pale shadow compared to what it should be, what it could be. You can develop a rapport within parameters. You know, if you're a baseball fan and you're sitting in a place with another baseball fan, you can, you can watch a ball game and have a level of rapport based on what you have in common. I love baseball. He loves baseball. We're watching a ball game. How much more powerful is the philos when there is the agape behind it? The point I'm trying to make. We'll come back to this next week. Um, the, third, the third issue. A slavery stewardship cannot achieve this reality. A slavery stewardship cannot achieve this reality. John 15, 15. Only a friendship stewardship achieves this reality. John 15, 15. All right, well, out of time. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. And Father, um, we're, we're finite beings, but we're finite beings that are being provided in the infinite realm. And so we're dependent upon your infinite spirit to teach us these things. Now, you would lead us in these things, Father, even the deep things of God. Increase our capacity, open our eyes. Make clear to each one of us what the infinite eternal value of this agape love is. Cause us to have a greater capacity to identify your agape for Jesus and Jesus' agape for us and our agape for one another. And help us, Father, to love you on the basis of the integrity of our transformed character and not simply the immature love because you're worthy of it. Of course you're worthy of it. 
But if our love is limited only because you're worthy, then we've not yet attained to the integrity love. We're to love because we are being made worthy. You are transforming us into that nature. So, Father, increase our capacity to see it and to live it. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.